Get along, little doggies. Get along, get along. Well, the doggies may be out on the prairie, and today we're going to talk about prairie, prairie gardens and meadows. And I, I'm speaking with a guest today who is the the indisputed king of prairie gardening, Neil DeBall of Prairie Nursery in Westfield, Wisconsin. Stay with me on Kendrew's Real Dirt, The Garden Show. Clem's Song Sparrow Farm and Nursery grows extraordinary herbaceous perennials, uncommon trees and shrubs, and a selection of luxurious peonies. Song Sparrow Nursery is a proud underwriter of Kendrew's Real Dirt. Songsparrow.com, S-O-N-G-S-P-A-R-R-O-W.com. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me. It's Ken Drews, and you're listening to Ken Drews Real Dirt, The Garden Show. I'm here every week with a new show and often with a guest, and today's guest is Neil DeBall. And Neil is a pioneer in the native plant industry. He is really just one of the best known and most accessible and brilliant and a great debater. And if people say, why should we grow native plants? And if somebody tries to talk Neil into not doing it, he can he can talk anybody into doing it. And I I love the native plants. I think we really have to pay more and more attention to them. And there's many more reasons today. There's reasons like uh, habitat loss. Now we can even add energy savings because a prairie is much more energy efficient than a lawn. But I I'm concerned about education. I was. Uh, I planted some things on a an embankment here in New Jersey, and they were low plants, doing very well, but the county came and mowed them down, and then mugwort, Artemisia, grew up five feet tall. That doesn't make sense. But we're going to learn more about prairie plants and gardening with prairie plants right now. Prairies only exist in North America, although very few people know that or even know what a prairie actually is. We might picture a field of wheat in Alberta, Canada, or the shortgrass prairie with bison grazing on them. Hello, Neil. Hello, Ken. So maybe we should start with what is a prairie? Well, it depends on your definition of prairie. Uh, Typically, a prairie is defined as the grasslands that once covered the Midwestern part of the United States, as defined separately from meadows, which are usually thought of as eastern grasslands. So, and of course, the word prairie is merely the French word for meadow. But when explorers first came across the Midwest a few hundred years ago, they encountered these huge grasslands that they had really no context or framework of reference for naming. And many of these explorers were French, so they called it meadow or prairie. Hmm. Uh, well, when I think of a prairie and I think of a meadow, I, I think of a meadow, as you said, in the east. But does that mean there's more water or... In the east, is meadow kind of a, a stage in succession? Will a meadow become a woodland? Oh, you know, either a prairie or a meadow, anywhere east of the 100th meridian, which is about runs right through central to central western Kansas, normally it would become a forest because of the abundance of rainfall, 20, 25 inches or more a year. However, Native Americans burned the prairies, which helped keep them open, as they did also some of the eastern meadows. But I think if you were to look at the potential uh, the difference between the two is there's a much greater potential for eastern meadows to succeed to the forest than the prairies because you have more rainfall and higher humidities, which favor woody plants over herbaceous flowers and grasses, which dominate prairies and meadows. Now, we've probably gone over everyone's head, but <laughs> I didn't mean <laughs> to do that. Well, why do prairies matter? Prairies matter for a lot of different reasons. First of all, if you look at our natural heritage, Globally, 
the prairie, which once covered millions of acres, was functionally extirpated as an ecosystem when settlers came in the mid-19th century and plowed it all up because of the incredibly rich soils that were formed by the roots of the grasses and the flowers over thousands of years. It's some of the richest soil in the world, and it was uniformly converted to agricultural land. And the prairie is now recognized as one of the rarest plant communities in the entire world. Secondly, the plants of the prairie offer us some great opportunities for landscaping in an ecologically sound way. And this perhaps is the most important reason, not just preserving our natural heritage, but solving some of our present-day ecological problems, such as energy use, the amazing amount of energy that goes into maintaining a lawn. People don't think about this, but not just the gas or diesel that's required to mow it, but also the fertilizers and pesticides. These are all derived from either petrochemicals or they are uh, they are very energy intensive in their fabrication, such as nitrogen fertilizer, et cetera. There's a lot of energy that goes into your lawn that you never see. Also, you have the ecological benefits of rainfall, infiltration into the soil, if you have a well-established prairie, you should never have to use any pesticides, fertilizers, maybe occasionally a little herbicides to get out some weeds, but rarely. So you are able to establish really ecologically sound, cost-effective landscapes because they're going to cost you less because you're not going to spend all this money on materials and maintenance. Well, you mentioned something about the rich soil and how it was formed by the prairie, by the plant's yes. roots. Yes, exactly. The average prairie grass, and this is fairly typical of most grasses, uh, they lose about one-third of their roots a year. They don't really lose them. What they do is they cut them off at the end of the season because it's not cost-effective from an energy and maintenance standpoint to maintain them over the winter. So they retain their larger roots, and the little feeder roots that get moisture and nutrients during the growing season are abandoned. This then is converted into organic matter. So over hundreds and thousands of years, you have this amazing amount of organic matter that is added to the soil, sometimes as deep as 5, 6, 7, 8, even 10 feet deep. Oh. It's amazing. Some of these plants have roots that go down to 28 feet. The grasses generally are anywhere from 1 to 8 feet, depending on the species. But some of the flowers have tap roots that go down 15, 20 feet deep. And the reason that is because they, they're in a pretty tough environment. Uh, the Midwest can have really hot, dry summers. And so these plants have adapted to gain moisture and nutrients from the lower subsoil during periods of drought and high temperatures. So it's an excellent choice for areas where you have really severe weather, which is happening now all across the, the eastern part of mm-hmm. the United States. So it sounds like it takes a long time for the prairie plants to get established. Uh, it depends on how you do it. If you install transplants, you can have a blooming garden the first year if you put them in in the spring. Now, not all the species will bloom the first year, but a very high proportion of well-established, well-started plants will bloom the first year. They won't reach their full development, but you'll get some blooms. By the second year, you'll have a fully developed garden for most of the species. However, if you start a prairie meadow from seed, that's a much more long-term endeavor. And you may find that it requires one to two years just to get the site ready to plant to make sure you've eliminated all the weeds and some of the weed seeds that are lurking in the soil. Then after you put down the seeds and you finally seed it, you will find that it takes three to five years for that prairie meadow to fully develop because the plants grow slowly. They're long-lived in most cases, but they grow very slowly because about 70% to 75% on average of the prairie plants living biomass, the living material of the plant is underground. Only Mm. about one-third to one-quarter of the living material is expressed as leaves and flowers. So they have these huge bank accounts under the ground (laughs) that hide them over during difficult periods. Well, how does it compare the price of doing it from seed or doing it from plant plugs, or do you kind of recommend a combination of both? 
Actually, um, generally we don't recommend a combination of the both because the management of a seeded prairie meadow versus a transplanted or plugged prairie meadow is completely different. So it's very difficult to manage the two when they're put together. What we usually do is either put in a prairie garden using transplants or create a prairie meadow using seeds. And the cost difference is significant. The cost of plants is orders of magnitude more than the cost of seeds. For instance, uh, let's take a, a thousand square foot area. If you could put in one plant per square foot, which is what we usually use, and if you were to get those plants for, say, $2 each, you'd be talking $2,000 for the material, not including the installation. Whereas seed to cover that same area would be about $75. So you mm. can see the significant difference in the materials cost, and there is more labor involved in putting in plants than there is in putting in seeds as well. So well you, you talked a little bit about prep, and uh, do, you, do you find that you have to sterilize the soil, or how, how do you prepare the soil for seeding? Um, I've never actually sterilized this well. <laughs> that would be a great thing if we, if we could do that. And there are <laughs> horrible chemicals like melt which are no longer allowed to, use, to be used, that do sterilize soil, but we don't, we don't take that route. What we typically do is we spend, depending on what's growing there, anywhere from you know one tilling to two years of site preparation. For instance, let's say you have a lawn that has no weeds in it. You can go in with a sod cutter and just cut that lawn right out, remove it, and put it in your plants or your seeds right then and there. However, most people are not usually converting their lawn so much as, say, a new construction area or an area where they've had weeds growing up. There's a lot of different situations. But let's say we have a weedy field that has a history of all kinds of nasty weeds. We will spend two, maybe even three years just getting rid of the plant material. And there are a number of ways you can do that. You can cover it with black plastic to smother it, which, of course, has its own environmental aspects of, oh, my gosh, the plastic came from oil, mm -hmm. chemicals, and mm -hmm. then how do I dispose of it? Versus tilling, you can go in and till the soil every three to four weeks, which is rather uh, time-consuming, and of course it does require energy to do that, and if you're using a tractor or a rototiller, you're going to use a fair amount of gasoline or, or other fuel. And a third choice is to spray it with uh, herbicides such as Roundup, which is what we typically do because it's the most cost-effective and easiest and most thorough method, although then you have the aspect of using herbicides. And a fourth method is to use smother crops. And this is the way farmers worked before there were herbicides. Typically, farmers would till up a field or plow up a field and put in a smother crop of buckwheat, which has big, broad leaves, and it basically shades the entire soil area when planted at the proper rate. And it will keep weeds from, from developing. And then you follow that with a crop of winter wheat planted in September or October after you plow the buckwheat under. And make sure if you're going to use this method, plow the buckwheat under before it goes to seed, or you'll have buckwheat for life. Oh, I was going to ask that next. But are these annual crops? Are they annuals? Like the, is yes. Buckwheat? Yeah. Yes, these are annual crops. And when the buckwheat gets into flower, you plow it under as a green manure, which actually helps improve your soil, particularly if you have a dry, sandy soil or a heavy clay soil. And after you plow that under, you let it sit for a couple of weeks, and then make sure that you don't have any uh, ammonia from the de degradation of the green leaf material that could affect the next crop you put in, which would be the winter wheat. And you put the winter wheat in usually mid to late September, depending where you're located, and it will grow over the winter, continuing to hold the soil and add organic matter. Then in the following spring or early summer, when the winter wheat is just starting to head out, you plow that under and put in a second crop of buckwheat. So the combination of plowing the field and putting in these cover crops and some other crops help to reduce weeds or in many cases um, practically eliminate them. So this is an organic method you can use that is relatively uh, low on inputs of fuel and other petrochemicals and it improves your soil at the same time. But it will take two years. But wow. 
We might take two years of, of applications of Roundup in many cases. Right. And the only benefit of the, uh, one of the great benefits of using herbicides is that you never plow the soil. And you just spray it and spray it, and then any weed seeds that are there also come up and are killed in the process. So mm. you do get that, that benefit. I'm speaking with Neil Duvall, who is the president of Prairie Nursery. And we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Ken Drews on Ken Drews Real Dirt. Clem's Song Sparrow Farm and Nursery grows extraordinary herbaceous perennials, uncommon trees and shrubs, and a selection of luxurious peonies. Song Sparrow Nursery is a proud underwriter of Kendrew's Real Dirt. Songsparrow.com, S-O-N-G-S-P-A-R-R-O-W.com. Hello, and thank you for staying with me. I'm speaking with Neil Duvall, my guest today, who is the president of Prairie Nursery. And we've been talking about prairies and making a prairie. And, Neil, I'm, I'm interested in why people in the Midwest accept the idea of a prairie. And yet in the East Coast and some other parts of the country, there's just like one in a thousand people accept the idea of prairie. Why do you think that's – is it a matter of education? What, what can we do and why is it happening? You know, I think it's a function of many factors. One of them is cultural differences. And one of the things in the Midwest, um, many of us are unencumbered by um, any necessity to be, uh, you know, conforming to certain uh, concepts of what is an appropriate landscape. And I think that that's because we grew up with different landscapes here than, say, in the east or the west. In the east, People are looking more towards England as part of a uh, historical or heritage-oriented way of looking at the landscape. So people put in the boxwoods and the border gardens, etc. And in the Midwest, we don't have that same uh, close touch with our English heritage. We're more, I think, more immigrant-oriented because a lot of people from Germany, Eastern Europe, uh, various other places came here and just started over. And in the West Coast, you have people looking more towards Japanese gardens, Chinese gardens, etc., and Mediterranean gardens, which could frankly, fits their climate very well. Mm-hmm. So I think in the Midwest, uh, you have also uh, maybe a little, people are maybe a little closer to the land because many people are agriculturally oriented, and so they are, are perhaps a little more open to the idea of using um, a less traditional landscape on their properties. It's also a, a function of necessity because we live in a pretty harsh environment here. It's a continental climate. It gets very cold in the winter, very hot in the summer, and it can be very dry, and these plants are survivors. They can handle it, and a lot of plants simply won't make it here. People don't want to use them anymore. They put in a prairie, and a lot of people are very happy that they've done that. I think also in the east, your landscapes are predominated by trees, and so a lot of people don't think of meadows as being an appropriate landscape, although they can be absolutely wonderful and very, very appropriate for certain situations. The only difference is that because you have a, cool, a somewhat cooler, usually <laughs> moister, more humid environment, uh, trees and shrubs can be more of a problem as far as invading into grassland ecosystems. So there's a little more maintenance required when you plant a prairie meadow in the east. Well, at this time of year, I, I guess the prairies are looking pretty good. And I'm wondering, what, what are some of the plants that are catching your eye this, oh, the this week? Good this <laughs> yeah, we've had... Plenty of rain. It has not been so horribly hot as it has been out uh, in the east. And we have yellow coneflower and prairie blazing star and bergamot. And it's just a a panoply of beautiful flowers. The pale purple coneflowers, echinacea pallida, and the wild quinine, which has a beautiful white flower. And the grasses are just starting to head up. So your prairie drop seeds and big blue stem and indigo grass are just getting going into their 
late summer and fall activities. So it's been a wonderful year for the prairies here, and uh, we hope the weather continues in a nice fashion. And I guess what you're looking at uh, in Wisconsin is tall grass prairie. And uh, in a a realistic, natural situation, I know there's hardly any tall grass prairie left, but what's the kind of mix? Would there be a, I mean, how much grass would there be to the non-grass flowering plants, which we call forbs? What's the ratio kind of with grass? And does it depend on the site? I imagine it does. But what's the kind of average grass to flowering plant ratio? You know, it depends on what you want to create. There's really not really any terribly hard and fast rules, but if you want it to be a low-maintenance landscape, you do have to have a grass component because it is the thick, fibrous roots of the grasses that encompass the soil surface, leaving no open soil where weeds can grow. And so you need to have at least 50% grasses in a meadow or a garden, although some people with a little bit more maintenance will put in a higher proportion of flowers. In fact, you can make a beautiful native prairie border garden using the appropriate plants. There's some plants that are a little bit, uh, shall we say, adventurous, either by seed or by rhizomes, which we avoid in the garden, so we're fairly selective. But you can create beautiful gardens that are relatively uh, relatively easy to maintain without completely using uh, 50% grasses. But in a prairie meadow situation where we seed it, we always use at least 50% grasses, usually 60% grass, 40% flowers by weight. Now, that said, the actual number of seeds per ounce in the flowers is generally fewer, excuse me, is generally more than the grasses. So per pound of flower seed, you will get many more seeds on the ground. So the actual relationship between seeds is about 60% flowers and 40% grass. Hmm. And one of the reasons we do that is because the grasses do tend to become a little stronger over time, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. So we want to make sure we have a full complement of flowers well established at the outset. Well, I see a lot of people who are trying to put in prairies and professionals who are putting in meadows in the east for clients. And, of course, the clients want results. They want instant results. And I see a lot of new meadow plantings that have Queen Anne's lace in them and uh, things like that. And I just can't imagine what's going to happen. Well, I guess that's part of maintenance. What is the maintenance uh, over the first few years and then ultimately? Well, in a prairie garden... Uh, it's relatively simple, but when you put in your transplants, you can mulch around them to keep down weeds. Some people use a pre-emergent herbicide, such as preen, after they put their plants in to keep weeds down. And once the prairie plants develop in the second, third year, you'll have very few weeds because they will shade them out and squeeze them out with their roots. However, a prairie meadow that you use seeds to establish is a completely different animal, and typically we do not include annuals in our mixes. There are very few annuals in the prairie. They're almost all perennials, many long-lived perennials, which makes it a long-term landscape. So once it's seeded, you should never have to reseed it. In the first year, though, the weeds will grow much faster than the native prairie plants. Most of your prairie plants are not going to get more than six inches tall from seed in the first growing season, whereas weeds can get six feet tall or taller. So what we do is we simply keep the area mowed back to six inches, usually three times a year in the first growing season after we put the seed in. In the second year, the prairie plants will start to get up 6 to 12 inches tall, and you will have a number of biennial weeds, such as the Queen Anne's Lace that you mentioned, along with uh, numerous other ones like burdock and sweet clover and uh, numerous biennials that will express themselves in the second growing season being biennials. So we keep it mowed at 12 inches, usually twice during the second year. And in the third year, we start to have some fun. If you are in an area where you can burn, mm. we manage areas with controlled burning which is really a very enjoyable process if you do it right. If you don't do it right, it can be very unenjoyable when the burn <laughs> burns up. 
Well, which rarely happens, but some people do that. Sometimes I think it's a good idea to invite the the fire department to, to come and burn your prairie or meadow. In fact, some people do that, but most people do it on their own here. And, and burning is also uh, an ingrained part of our culture here because people have burned off their fields for you know, 150 years since settlers came here. And, of course, Native Americans burned their prairies for a number of reasons. Basically, it was a land management tool to keep trees out of the prairie because the prairie was much more productive as far as producing bison and elk, which were the foundation of their of their economy, of their uh, hunter-gatherer economy. So there was this long tradition before uh, Europeans showed up here of burning the landscape, and uh, many people adopted that because it has some very good benefits uh, for managing not just meadows, but also uh, other fields. So it's kind of an uh, ingrained part of our culture here where it's okay to burn, whereas in the East it's not, uh, it's not, so, uh, <laughs> not so friendly to people no, that wanted no. to uh, create small conflagrations on their property. So in the East, uh, could you mow? Uh, yes. You can use mowing as a substitute. In fact, I did a study about 25 years ago where we looked at uh, using mowing as a substitute for burning. And in the spring, and late, actually mid to late spring, usually in our area, um, mid to late April, and it would be fairly similar to the east as well, where uh, when the sugar maple buds are opening, because it can vary from year to year as far as what the uh, annual cycle is and temperature regimes, but when the buds of the sugar maple, Acer Sicarum, are opening, it's usually the best time to burn or mow your prairie. You mow it right down to the ground as close as you can and then rake off the material after you mow it, which exposes the soil to the sun's rays, thus warming the soil and favoring the warm season, primarily warm season prairie flowers and grasses. Most of our weed problems are cool season weeds and grasses. They have already initiated growth by the time we get in there and mow or burn. So they're going to be six, seven, eight inches tall by the time we either mow or burn the prairie. Thus, we will be depriving them of their new growth. It took reserves from their roots to create the new leaves. Now they're at a disadvantage energy-wise in their roots, and we've just exposed the soil to the heat of the sun, which gives the, uh, really favors the prairie plants over the weeds. So it's a, a very good method for substituting burning is mowing very close to the ground, again, mid to late April. Well, I know that people can find a lot of information on prairie plants and making a prairie on your website, which we will have on the Ken Drew's Real Dirt website. We'll have a link there. And, Neil, I want to thank you. Every time I talk to you, I learn so much more, and it makes me want to go right out and turn over my lawn. (laughs) (laughs) Instantly. Always a pleasure talking with you. Oh, it's great. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. It was great to talk with Neil DeBall of Prairie Nursery in Westfield, Wisconsin. I always learn so much from Neil. And as I was saying before, he is a pioneer. He started planting prairies, growing prairies, and a nursery supplying plants, prairie plants. And you can go online and see the plants and even buy seed. And uh, if you want to do a prairie from seed or if you want to do a meadow, it's a great source for wonderful, clean, high-quality seed for starting a meadow garden or a prairie garden. And I think more and more people are doing that as more and more people are reducing the size of their lawn. And that is, as they say, a good thing. Now, we don't want to just get rid of the lawn and put down asphalt. It's nice to have something that uh, looks good and is good for the earth. And a meadow garden, if you live in a place with high humidity and cooler summer temperatures, which we wish we had, but ample rainfall, then you might do a meadow garden with plants like goldenrod and New York aster and uh, New York ironweed and some other terrific plants. And if you are in a prairie area, if you're in the Midwest where the tall grass prairies grow, then you want to have big blue stem, maybe little blue stem, uh, some liatris, which is called blazing star or gay feather, 
and um, let's see, Rubecchia, the Black Eyed Susans. Oh, Monarda fistulosa. Now, that's a plant that I love that people don't sell. You see all those Monarda didymas, which get terrible mildew, but <laughs> Monarda fistulosa is pink. It blooms late. It's beginning to bloom now, which is mid-July. It's supposed to bloom around August, but you know how it's been this year. It never gets mildew. It grows by the side of the road occasionally. If you can find it, it's wonderful to grow, but you can get it from Prairie Nursery. And it's, uh, as I was saying, it's pink. It's like a clear baby pink color. Beautiful foliage, always clean. I'm growing it, and I'm thrilled that I am, along with many other prairie plants that do very well for me. My Rudbeckia maxima, hmm, I should put a picture of that on the website. I think I'll do that. At kendrewsrealdirt.com, you'll see a picture of Rudbeckia maxima, maybe some more prairie plants. See you next week on Kendrews Real Dirt, The Garden Show.